Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest today because if you interact with her on Instagram, you know that she has a super, super fun outlook on life. And one of the things that we're really trying to focus on on the podcast here lately is to share the uncomfortable things about diabetes and the people who live with them and still are living their best lives and still fully em embracing themselves. So Janet Marin is our guest today. Janet, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I feel so honored. <laughs> well, we are honored by you coming to hang out with us today. So oh, uh, thank you. I, I know you, you live with diabetes and mm -hmm. are what we were looking for as a guest on this part of the, this series of the podcast. You know, somebody who lives with diabetes and who lives with other complications. And I know you live with gastroparesis as well. So uh, before we get to that, I'd love to talk about your diabetes diagnosis. I know you've lived with type 1 for 21 years, but what do you remember from your, your early days of being diagnosed with diabetes? Well, I was diagnosed at 6. And I always tell people that I don't remember my life before diabetes. Like I was born that day. <laughs> I remember the two weeks prior me getting diagnosis just because uh, everybody around me were noticing the symptoms. I mean, I was fine. I didn't think I was, nothing was wrong. But yeah, like I was frequently using the bathroom, you know, drinking a lot of water, eating like every 20 minutes. And I, but I was like young, so I didn't do, I just went about my day <laughs> and yeah, it came to a point where I was kind of like losing so much weight and I had, you know, that weird fruity smell coming out of your mouth. And that's when my parents were like, yeah, I think something's wrong. The It was a Monday because I remember my dad was like, you're not going to go to school today. You're going to go to the doctor. And I was like, okay, let's go. <laughs> and so we went and they immediately checked my blood sugar because of the symptoms. And yeah, it was like, it wouldn't even read. It just said hi. And from the clinic, I got transported to the hospital. And I don't remember even being really sick, though, or feeling sick. I wasn't in, I wasn't like vomiting or anything like that. So, yeah, they, my, my parents were crying and I was like, why are you guys crying? <laughs> so I, I didn't understand the severity of it yet because obviously I was, I was little. Yeah, and we went to the hospital and they told us it was, at the time, it was called juvenile diabetes. And so I was like, what is diabetes? I don't, I don't even know that. I thought it was just like a flu and it would go away. But I was in the hospital for like a month and I missed a lot of school because even after that, like my blood triggers have always been like crazy. Like ever since I've been diagnosed, it was, it just, it's always been crazy, like I've never had a good day or a good week where I'm like, yeah, today I'm so controlled. It's always been crazy. And so I ended up, you know, going back to school and stuff and having to adjust to that. And uh, it was weird, though, because my parents never treated me like I was a sick person. You know, I just did what I needed to do. And then I still didn't really understand what was happening. Like <laughs> my parents didn't really explain, like, this is going to be a forever thing. So I just did what they told me to do. And. I think within like two years, I was completely independent, like doing my insulin shots, checking my blood sugars. And my parents would watch me, but I wanted to do it myself. Yeah. And growing up with diabetes, I just thought it was normal. Like it was, I, I just did it until I 
started getting older and I noticed, okay, I'm the only one that's doing this. And then that's when I was like, I think, yeah, I think I'll have this forever. But that was like when I was already like in high school. And only and also because my parents never were like, you're sick or anything like that. So when people would be like, oh, you're sick. I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) And then I I mean, I I just had diabetes probably until I was like 19. That's when my complications started. The first thing that I experienced, I guess, when it comes to complications, it was my kidneys. My kidneys weren't giving out. They weren't working properly anymore. So they put me on like treatment for it. And I changed completely like my lifestyle. And I started taking my diabetes more serious, which was hard because all my friends were just like living life. And I had to be really like strict because obviously they were like, it's either you do it or you don't and your kidneys will be gone. And obviously I didn't want my kidneys to be gone. Yeah. So I did everything possible to basically kind of like reverse it and everything that I did helped. And right now they're not at like 100%, but they're a lot better. And I'm not on any kind of medication for my kidneys, but I have, you know, this other thing. <laughs> and well, then I, I, I want to go back really quick. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I want to go back really quick because... I, something you shared really resonated with me about like living with diabetes and not feeling sick, you know, like yeah. not feeling like the day-to-day maintenance and all of the carb counting and dosing and constant like diabetes distress that's on our minds doesn't always like register as sickness because it's so lifelong. We know it's not going away. So for us, it becomes yeah. normal. And it was so weird to me. I, it was actually yesterday I was thinking about this because I was checking in my, my whoop, which is this app I use like a health tracker app. And I had a couple of weeks ago, I had been sick. And so I had checked the sickness box and, and now I like unchecked it. And I was like, yeah, like I'm not sick. And then I was like, yes, I am. Like I'm always sick, you know, like, so like that was an interesting thing to me of like, you know, like sick days, like a regular, an abled person who doesn't live with a chronic illness, like they have sick days and then non-sick days. And for us, like, Every day is a sick day. It's just how many sicknesses are we piling on? Um, yeah. And it, it's such an interesting, I don't know, it was kind of like a mind-blowing moment for me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, like I said, my parents never treated me like, or anybody in my family really, like treated me like if I was a sick person or even disabled or whatever. I didn't even know those words existed or chronically ill. Like, I didn't know what that even meant when I was younger because... I just went about my day. If I needed insulin, then I would take it. Then, you know, it wasn't a big deal. No one went it, no one made a big deal out of it. I just did it. And I come from like a huge, like Mexican family. So they just like did, they just let me do what I had to do. They didn't make it a big deal or anything. And up, I, up until like I was my mid twenties, I was like, okay, maybe I am chronically ill. <laughs> like I still didn't accept it. <laughs> and I was in the hospital constantly. And I'm like, no, I'm not sick. Like, but that's just how I was raised. And it, I still think I still sometimes forget like that I have all these things because I'm like, mm. but yeah, obviously now I, I accept it. And but it was kind of hard. I think something I want to go back to. So you mentioned that you're Mexican. I also am a Mexican person. Oh, I know. I love it. <laughs> I am always like I read a blog that you wrote where you had to really like take charge of your control because of I mean, there's that language barrier sometimes with our parents. Yeah. So as somebody who is bilingual, how did you find yourself like facilitating some of your care with your parents? It was, 
it was it was like really hard in the beginning because they have ad like they they didn't know anything. And so my mom was a stay at home mom and my dad was, you know, always at work like all the time. So any doctor's appointments I went to or anything, it was with my mom. But my mom doesn't speak English really well. I mean, even when I was younger, it was probably worse because our first language was Spanish. Yeah. And I was barely like grasping to t- learn English the right way too, because I was so little, I was six. So I kind of had to be like the translator to my mom because my mom was there, of course. And then they would tell me when I would go to the endocrinologist, like, you know, my A1C or whatever. And so, yeah, I had to figure out how to explain to her that what an A1C was in Spanish, you know, and or what they were telling me. And I'm like, that's a big word. I don't even know how to say that in Spanish. <laughs> So it was really hard. It was really hard in the beginning because it was only like me and her. And we both were kind of (laughs) like, because we didn't know those big English words. We were still speaking very fluently Spanish and I still speak Spanish to her. I'm fluent in it. And so it was hard until we had one of my cousins um, pretty much go to all, all of our doctor's appointments because she was better at English. And yeah, growing up, I... It was always my mom and then my cousin going to doctor's appointments with me. And eventually until I was, you know, older and probably in high school, that's when I started going alone with my mom because I could translate better. But yeah, it was it was weird (laughs) because back then, too, they didn't really require a translator. Like Mm -hmm. throughout the years, they started saying like, oh, you can't translate anymore. We have to get like a translator who's went to school and stuff and i was like well i'm not lying to my mom but it's okay like if you guys but some of us do like, some of us yeah translate. like and it, okay yeah i know and no i did a couple times no well, I, it was, yeah i'm glad i'm glad we can laugh about it because like yeah that i mean that true for sure happened like but at the same time like we're we're doing an event that we're doing in english and spanish and we're using like the the auto-generated captions for most of the translation but there isn't a, like the diabetes terminology and the medical terminology doesn't just translate over. Like, and, mm-hmm. and the way that we even explain things is written first in English or like Latin. And so yeah. like translating it over to Spanish uh, and then also translating in a way that actually makes sense to someone who's fluent in Spanish. Like that, those are two different things. So I'm glad to hear yeah. that now that mandate the translation because that's just just the information alone, like is is so much of the battle and like understanding how it all works and asking a six year old to be able to understand that. Yeah, at <laughs> an early age is just it, there, there's no way that you're set up for success that way. Yeah, yeah. I actually I'm sorry. I didn't mean to no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I that's how I started to like read a lot because I, I read a lot of books. But it all started because I was like, well, I need to learn these big words in, in English and somehow find a, the same word in Spanish and make it all work. <laughs> because sometimes I would tell my mom things in Spanish and she was like, I don't know. I mean, in English, I'm sorry. She's like, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> so I'll try to like describe it. And it's just, it still happens to this day sometimes because... I'll, you know, I'll get a new diagnosis and I'll tell her and she's like, "Ah, I don't know what you just said. (laughs) So it still happens to this day, but I'm better at it, obviously, because now I'm better at my English and it it works. And now I go to my doctor's appointments by myself. So (laughs) So that makes me think about how, and this is just like overall how I think in my brain, but it's like people always forget that one of the socioeconomic barriers to access with diabetes is language. 
So yeah. I think that when you're diagnosed as young as we were, because you were six, I was eight, and our mom didn't speak English that great. So it's like you're sitting there trying to do this, but at the same time, you're trying to also process what's happening to you. Yeah, we can laugh about it, but it is a bit. There's some trauma there, you know. It's something that oh, you yeah. on have to unpack because it's like you are. Mm-hmm a child who is having to be put into the driver's seat basically with your parent and you're like okay we're gonna drive this car together and try not to crash and kill each other and that can be really really hard especially like you mentioned you were hospitalized a lot I resonate with that I was also in DK all the time because it's like we didn't know we didn't they didn't know what they were doing I didn't know what I was doing yeah and then we'd go to the appointments and I am almost sure that I'm part of the reason that we have to have translators now because I was a live kid. <laughs> yeah, like no. 100%. I was like, oh, todo está bien. No, my English yeah. was like 11. So I, I said, what do we Exactly. <laughs> so I definitely feel what you're saying. And I just think it's important to point out because people forget that all the time. So I'm glad yeah. hair is evolving to include language because it's just, it's, it's paramount. Well, yeah, we talk actually... a lot. I'm sorry, Jenna, go ahead. <laughs> we like interrupt you so no, I was just gonna say I've actually educated people like out in Spanish because they'll ask me kindly what I have on my arm, it's my Dexcom or my pump, and they speak Spanish. And sometimes when I did have my little LIGO like flare up too much and they all they'll ask me like what is that? You know, and so I'll translate I'll translate in Spanish because they're asking me in Spanish. So that's another reason why I started getting better at it too because like random strangers would ask me in Spanish. And so I couldn't really say like, I don't know. So like I kind of educated myself more on that too because I'm like, okay, people are going to ask me in Spanish and I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, it's one of those things that we don't, and when I say we, I feel like the English speaking American diabetes community like don't necessarily think about because we are not used to walking into places where we don't understand the language. And I think that's why you know, travel is so important and like visiting places outside of your comfort zone is so important because you realize like, oh, there's these entire communities that I don't understand where I'm outside of, of, of the norm. And what we've really discovered and are focusing on in some of our work with North Texas Food Bank is when we talk about health equity, it starts with information and just an education, like just being able to learn and access the right treatment methods and the right information mm-hmm. on prescriptions and medication. That is the start of health equity because until we all have access to that, uh, like yeah. we're not we're not going to be able to dramatically affect outcomes for people across culture barriers. And so, yeah, just having access, like you know, it, it's been only in the last five to ten years that there's been any Spanish language board certified diabetes resources online. And like you know, yeah, we've got self driving cars, but we don't have Spanish translation for people with diabetes. So it's like. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, things, <laughs> a lot, a lot of room for growth, so to speak. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that we can laugh about it too, but at the same time, like it really is a huge issue and like what a great impact it makes when you're able to connect about your care in your, you know, first language. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel uh, comfortable so- sometimes talking Spanish more, uh, but it is still difficult, like translating like medical things in Spanish, just because we don't have like a dictionary to go to. Like, what is a bolus? What is a bolus? Right, in right, exactly. Like, bolus? Bolus? I, I don't know. I'm still looking for the word. Same, same. Like we don't. Like you know, you guys have books and all these things that you guys could kind of like fact check, and we don't. We kind of have to just wing it in a way. Because <laughs> I don't. I haven't found like a book or anything that's kind of like. Well, this is what it means or, you know, any kind of translation or that or anything. And 
I was like, dang, we're in 2023 and we don't have a book or anything. <laughs> I was like, we need to Man. change that. And and like even just the name like diabetes is like it's just diabetes or diabetes, right? Like it's like yeah, the same diabetes. word, just like that's we not, yeah. Well, Mexico like, that's not, call it they call it teniendo right. azúcar. You have sugar. Very yeah. Nice. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, again, just like even the one, there's no one to one like translation. You no know, like dictionary of diabetes across all these languages, and you know we're making progress. But I think that's something where you know back to health equity is is access to information. If you if you can't access any information or there isn't anything, it's just auto translated from a browser or from a piece of technology that doesn't really yeah. translate it in a way that's culturally going to resonate. Like that's a real challenge, a real real challenge. Yeah, and I'm literally the only one in my family who has type one diabetes, and sometimes when you know my older relatives like my tias get diabetes, they'll call me crying like I have diabetes, and I'm like, what kind? <laughs> And they're like, what do you mean, what kind? <laughs> we don't have the same kind, Tia. And so I'll have to explain to them, like, I'm sorry. You're, it, it's still like a shock. Any diabetes is a shock, right? No one wants to have it. But yeah, they're, they don't know the difference. And I'm like, why doesn't a doctor tell them the difference? I, I don't understand. That's the thing, too. I'm like, doctors are not saying type 1 or type 2 or tipo 1 or tipo 2. And they don't like explain it. They're like, oh, no mas tienes diabetes. Okay, well, what kind? <laughs> and so well, I'll have to explain it to them. So I'm like, I, I think like that. At, at that point, though, it's like, it's very similar to English. Like people like don't, don't explain the difference between type one and type two very much either. And like, you know, I think yeah. sometimes, especially in those family scenarios, like that can be where those sort of uncomfortable conversations happen, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's just a lack of awareness and we as, people who are chronically ill have to educate one-to-one -one with like every person who comes up who's, you know, genuinely curious or means well, they're asking about, you know, a CGM yeah. or asking about a pump or something. And like, you know, they, they mean well, but it does feel sometimes like they're encroaching on our personal space or it's like, you know, something right. that we kind of yeah. guard and hold like really close. And I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 go ahead. I, I've noticed that you know, sometimes when you correct a person and it is in Spanish, they get like offended kind of in a way of like, oh, well, you know more than me. But I'm like, no, I'm just trying to like educate you. Like the one that you have isn't the same as the one I have, you know, so they kind of get offended sometimes. I mean, e English and Spanish, I've had both scenarios happen, but I tried the best way to be like nice and not like come out aggressive with it. Because, yeah, some people do, like, take it the wrong way when I correct them. Like, oh, no, that's not the one I have. Like, that's the one your grandma has when I don't have that one. <laughs> it's like uh, that TikTok sound when they're like, because you got your degree and you know every damn thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. That's how, I, that's how they make me feel. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, and I wear my, I used to not wear, like, my pump out or my CGM or whatever because I hated the questions. I hated having to repeat myself over and over that I'm diabetic and no, it's not the one that you, your grandma has or whatever. So it, it became like annoying. And for a while, I wouldn't show like my gadgets or anything. But now, I mean, like, I don't care. But it was like, I just, I think I just got like over just repeating myself over and over again because it, it happened all the time. And I also had like my vitiligo very like, it had just like came out like like I had it everywhere so then I would get even more stares so yeah I was just like everybody would stare at me <laughs> well 
Well, I want to talk about that because you, when, when we were building this episode and kind of planning out having you on, we were looking for somebody who lives with diabetes and gastroparesis. So I'd love to talk a little bit about gastroparesis and I, I don't want you to have to do all of the education on that because we've had people on the, on the podcast with gastroparesis before, but we haven't dug into talking about it as much. And so like for those listening and who don't know, it's a medical condition that affects the normal movement of the muscles in your stomach. So like paralyzed muscles in your stomach, gastroparesis, gastrostomach paresis doesn't, and, and paralysis. So talk a little bit about sort of your treatment methods. And I think that you had just mentioned that, uh, like the, uh, the Tilgo, is that what it's called or? The what? I'm sorry. It's vitiligo. Oh, vitiligo. Yeah. Which is different. I think that's like a skin. I, yeah. Okay. Can you explain to us to our ignorant listeners and to myself? That's like the least, like, I don't even worry about vitiligo because it's not painful or anything, but Vitiligo is like a skin condition and it's basically your skin pigmentation attacking itself. And when you get white spots all over your body, it's basically like not making your skin color. So basically it's like no kind of protection, you know? So it's just for my case, it's usually brought on by stress or something is going on in your body. And just like how you know, type 1 diabetes attacks your pancreas, it's the same way. Your body is kind of like so much in stress that it's trying to attack something. And of course, it attacked my skin pigmentation. And I started getting spots, but it happened very rapidly. I had like a little one. And like by the next following week, I was like covered in them. Like every morning I would wake up and I would notice a new spot. And they were like really big and all over my face, my arms, my legs. And at first I thought it was eczema because that's what I've had all my life. But my doctor's like, I think you have vitiligo. And I said, what, what is that? What, I don't even know what that is. And that also happened around the time my kidneys were giving out. And that's why they told me your body is in so much stress because of your kidneys and your diabetes not being well controlled as well. My A1C wasn't great. So they said that it was caused on by uh, my diabetes. But I mean, that that's my case, obviously. But other people have different stories, but usually it's brought on by some kind of stress within your body. I got my A1C under control and everything, and they kind of started to disappear. I have them randomly here and there. And like, if you really notice, or if you really stare at my face, I have some on my face still, but nothing compared to how I used to have it when I first got it. I'll have it forever because I still get little spots here and there when I do stress out sometimes or my body is in a lot of stress and I'm in the hospital, I'll start getting them randomly, but not as much as I used to get them. And like, yeah, like before I was just super converted. I was a little bit darker than I am now. And when I got diagnosed with vitiligo, like my whole skin complexion went like lighter. And it's weird because if I show you a picture of myself as a kid, I'm like darker. Like I've always been on the darker side of, you know, the the color (laughs) spectrum. But now I'm like, probably like four shades lighter than what I was before. So it's weird because I look at myself as a kid and I'm like, wow, I was really dark compared to myself now. So yeah, like it, it affects your whole body in a sense. And it happened, oh, to me, it happened super quick. It was like overnight. Well, I think, it, and thank you for explaining that. And, you know, I think it's part of, you know, the uncomfortable things about living with a chronic illness is that the stress that our bodies are under consistently 
opens us up to other autoimmune responses and other autoimmune reactions. Like you described it, it's just your skin basically doing what happened to your, our beta cells and our pancreases where they just are attacking mm-hmm. each other until they go, they're gone and they go away. And, you know, and they often like can flare up as well or like, you know, have, you know, peaks and valleys, but thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, too, I want to kind of steer us back as well to gastroparesis, which is also a very common complication and side effect of a life with diabetes uh, as well. And so, you know, what I kind of want us, what our listener, what I want our listeners to focus on is as we're talking about these things that can be very uncomfortable for people with diabetes to hear that you also are still living your life with diabetes. You're living your life and you're letting your life shine <laughs> along with these very heavy burdens, but it al- also allows you to be yourself. And I think that, that's yeah. what I want people to focus on. And it looks like we lost Eritrea, but there she comes. She's coming back. Okay. Right, she got her. <laughs> I was like, where's she uh, going? <laughs> but she's back. So tell us a little bit about your diagnosis with gastroparesis and, and how you and your care team kind of built that plan for you and and how you manage it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I got officially diagnosed with gastroparesis 2017 in December. Prior to that, I've always had like a very weird sensitive stomach. So I, I was, I was already dealing with like stomach problems. Like I got my gallbladder taken out when I was 18. Um, so I've always like was very used to dealing with my stomach kind of acting up. But then it just started to become very severe to the point where like I would eat and I couldn't keep anything down. The pain was just like unbearable. I would end up in the hospital because obviously I couldn't eat. My blood sugars were crazy. I would end up in DKA. And it was like a couple of months where I was just in and out of the hospital and they wouldn't tell me what was wrong. Like they would do tests on me and they were like, everything fi- is fine. And I said, well, clearly something's not fine because I'm not okay. You know, and there was the last time that I had got admitted to the hospital, I was like super sick in the ICU and I couldn't even talk anymore. I was like super weak and they just couldn't tell me what was wrong. But obviously something was wrong and something it was wrong with my stomach. So finally, I think, oh, my cousin had got, like into it with the doctor that was taking care of me that day and he kept saying no she's fine she's fine she's fine like nothing's wrong with her and she's like well she's not fine like look like she I physically don't look fine so they finally said well we haven't tried one test and so they did an empty gastric test on me and that's when you know you drink something and you lay under a machine and it takes pictures of your stomach and basically like your esophagus while your food's going down to see how fast your food goes down and how fast you digest your food. And that's when they found out that it was gastroparesis because my food wouldn't move at all. It was just in my stomach. And um, they basically were like, yeah, you have gastroparesis. And then they didn't really give me any information. I had no idea what gastroparesis was. I didn't even know it was a complication of being diabetic or, you know, having diabetes for so long. Like I did not know anything. They gave me a pamphlet, a very vague pamphlet. And they're like, yeah, you just have to change your, you know, your eating habits and, you know, you'll be fine. And I said, oh, okay. It sounds like just another thing that I have to deal with. But it was so much more severe than they told me. They never even talked about how bad it could get, nothing until 
I started going to doctors. You know, I, I had one gastroenterologist and he kind of just gave me medication for it. None of the medication worked. And that's the thing with gastroparesis. It's kind of like considered a rare disease and they don't have a lot of treatments for it. And I think I tried like three of the treatments and that was literally it. And the other treatment, it was illegal in the United States because it, it affects your heart. And so I couldn't try that one because it wasn't legal here in the United States. Other than that, there wasn't any kind of cure for it or like treatment besides medication that didn't work for me and basically the medication was kind of like to help me move like contract my muscles in my stomach and to try to help me move my food but it just didn't work at all and I didn't really like the gastroenterologist that I had so I went to another one and basically they said the same thing and they kind of the second one that I went to kind of blamed me for having gastroparesis and he was very rude to me he said because I asked them, I said, like, is it going to be like this forever or is it going to get like, you know, worse? Like, I just was asking simple questions like I really wasn't educated on it. And he said, well, if you continue to not take care of yourself, then it's going to get worse. And he said, that's one of the reasons why you you got it, because you were how he said a really very, he said kind of basically like you were dumb because you didn't take care of yourself growing mm -hmm. up. And I said, well, dang, thanks. <laughs> and obviously you believe these things because these are professional doctors. Why wouldn't you, you know? So I left that appointment kind of sad and I was like, I'm not going back to him. <laughs> so I finally found another one and it's the one that I love. It was a female doctor and she helped me and still is trying to help me get better. I saw her because my primary care physician recommended me to her because she was talking about a gastric stimulator uh, and maybe I would qualify for it because of my gastrobraces and the gastric stimulator is basically a stimulator, a little machine that's placed in your stomach and it shocks, it gives your stomach shocks so it could try to move your food. And unfortunately, I didn't really benefit from that either. I'm already at my high, the highest voltage that they could put it on. But my doctor doesn't want to remove it either because she doesn't know if I get it removed. What if I get worse? So she's like, I'd rather just keep it in. And what, because what if it is doing a little bit of some work, you know? And I'm, you know, I was so sick before the stimulator, but I still continued to be sick with the stimulator. So that's why we, we had, that's how we found out that it wasn't really working for me. But a lot of, a lot of patients do have really good, like, you know, experiences with that gastro. I mean, the stimulator. She's the only one who does it here in Nevada and Las Vegas. Like no other doctor does it because they don't really see a lot of high success rates. So they're kind of like, I'm not going to waste my time to do it. But my doctor is like super good at just going above and beyond to try to help me get somewhat better. I've been going to her for, I think I've had a gastroparesis for eight years now. I've been going to her for five of the eight and she has gone like above and beyond for me, but it's just still, I'm still pretty sick. Like I got, I had to be placed on a feeding tube last September because I was so malnourished, you know. And another thing people probably don't know is like your stomach's not only paralyzed, it doesn't absorb no nutrition at all. 
So even if I have the most nutritious meal by mouth, it does nothing to me. I don't get any of the nutrition at all anymore. And that's one of the main reasons why people are placed on feeding tubes when you have gastroparesis. Because even if you could eat by mouth, it's no use. You're not absorbing any of the nutrition. So eventually, you know, in the beginning, she told me about the feeding tube, but she told me, I don't think you need it yet. Like, you know, you still are holding your weight. You're still eating by mouth sometimes. So you're okay. But then just gradually, I started getting worse and worse. I was in the hospital every month for more than a week because my gastroparesis flare-ups were extremely bad and I had to go to the hospital. You know, because when you throw up, you lose a lot of magnesium and potassium and just things that you need to keep your heart pumping. And so I constantly was in the ICU because I was like NDKA and I just was very, very sick. And I went as far as I could without a tube, but I just got extremely sick. And I, it was like, either you get the tube or you kind of die. Because <laughs> I was at that point where I was fainting all the time because I was so malnourished. My hair was falling out. I started to hallucinate like really, really bad, which I didn't even know that was a thing when you're malnourished. I was hallucinating like crazy. And yeah, I, I was just getting really, really worse where I couldn't even walk on my own anymore. So yeah, like my parents took me to my doctor and she said, yeah, you need a feeding tube. And from the, from the doctor's office, I got I went to the hospital because I was extremely sick. And yeah, it, it's, I haven't had the best experience with my tube, but I definitely, I keep my weight on now and I still go through flare-ups, but we're still trying to figure out how I could somehow get more independent with my life and stuff because it's pretty hard right now. Most, most of my days I'm in bed because I'm in pain and nauseous. It gets really bad. Like I get very light sensitive. I get sound sensitive. I have to be like in a pitch black room. And I'm just like constantly throwing up and I have to be, you know, connected to my feeding pump 24 hours out of the day when I am in full flare up. When I'm not, I just connect that night while I'm sleeping. But yeah, it's been quite a journey with gastroparesis. It's very, it's, I I it's a horrible disease I don't even know how to explain it's just horrible and if people who haven't know how bad it is but I don't really I don't actually know anybody else who has type 1 diabetes and a feeding tube all the people who have a feeding tube they don't have type 1 diabetes and I'm very grateful for you know the chronic illness community itself because they've helped me a lot with just my feeding tube um, I was already part of the type 1 diabetes prior to that. But, you know, getting all these other complications, I found out like, wow, other people have all these complications, but not necessarily coming from type 1 diabetes. It's just other things that they have. But yeah, like I haven't really met anybody who has it as bad as me because I feel like I have it so bad. And well, I, I thank you, first of all, for sharing and being so open. Obviously... You, just in the 10 minutes of you explaining it, like it sounds extremely heavy and difficult. And yeah. one of the things that I think was the, a driving force behind us doing this interview is if you casually looked at your social media profiles, you would never know how much pain and struggle you're going through. You would see a mostly normal, you know, seeming like really outgoing, fun person who is doing what they want to do. But we don't see, and like, I think that's, I don't know, there's a kind of like a viral graphic going around social media right now. It's like, 
you know, what you see about someone and like the whole rest of their life. And it's like a tiny circle and like this big thing. And I think like mm-hmm. for people who are chronically ill and like, you, you know, shout out to the rare disease and the chronically ill community, like even outside of diabetes, like amazing stories. Yes, they're amazing. Community. And just the strength that you see from people that you don't even know and like are, are dealing with diseases that I have no idea about. I've never heard of before. Yeah, and really. <laughs> they're there. They give their time, like what little time they have that feels good to other people to, to help them, mm-hmm. inspire them and, and help them through. So, um, you know, I, I just want to say thank you again for, for spending your time with us today to do that. And, you know, just for being a great example for, you know, people who are unfairly chronically ill and, yeah. uh, you know, still making, making the best out of it and, and giving back to others. And it really is an inspiration. Like, inspiration isn't always like some amazing achievement, like running a, you know, a hundred mile marathon or, you know, you know, winning the lottery or whatever it is like those are short, yeah. but, but, you know, sometimes just getting out of bed and like being able to make your, you know, be a good family member, a good friend and like do what you want mm-hmm. to do is an ama- amazing thing to celebrate. So thank you yeah. for, for being so open about that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I think it's a hard topic to move forward from, right? I'm having a really hard time processing it. Like, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I never want to center the ables because I feel like in this conversation, we're the ables. But it's like, (laughs) what a a toll and what an amazing and what an incredible, like, I don't know, it can be terrible and still be incredible, like journey that you've been on now. And I, I don't know, I have so much respect, like so much. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, even just like going through three different, doctors and like you know we you hear people's stories in chronic ill communities in the diabetes community about firing your endo and like going and finding new ones like that takes so much effort and like when your disease also takes away from your ability to go outside stand up like that that makes those things even more challenging and so yeah good good for you i'm so glad that you found a doctor who like treats you like a person yeah she's amazing it's just willing to try to help um you know, I guess, and I, I'm I'm with you, Eritrea. Like, I don't want to like move on too quickly, or or you know, from because it's so. Impactful I could talk heavy, about it forever. <laughs> well, but that's that's so great, and I and I think like that is why we wanted to have you on because like there's we I hope that there's someone here listening who would benefit from it. So like for that person who's listening or is either newly diagnosed or is dealing with complications, like what kind of advice would you, would you give them on how to, how to navigate the situation or, or what would you, what would you tell to yourself when you were first diagnosed with, with gastroparesis or, or any of the other rare diseases alongside your diabetes? Yeah. Well, cause I also have, I, I got diagnosed with gastroparesis and like within a week I got diagnosed with neuropathy. And then like a couple of months after that, I got diagnosed with diabetes neuropathy, which is you know damaging your eyes so my complications were like back to back to back I had no time to process each one of them I had to process them all together because it happened so quick and then later on down the line I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia so it was just like so many diagnoses back to back I couldn't even keep up with them and it was frustrating because I just couldn't figure out like how to go about my gastroparesis in general. My gastroparesis is the one that hinders my life the most and probably neuropathy now. Sometimes I'm like, I don't even want a new pancreas. I kind of want a new stomach because it's just so hard to manage it, especially 
managing it with type 1 diabetes. You know, I see my other friends who just have gastroparesis. And I mean, obviously, gastroparesis is not easy to live with at all, but they don't have to deal with having to watch their blood sugars like 24-7 like a hawk. And I think that's where I tried to find other people like that with me, but I haven't really found anybody. Everybody that I do know who had gastroparesis doesn't have type 1 diabetes. So I wish I could find someone kind of like me because it's it's lonely. <laughs> it's lonely. And I guess if I had to give my own self-advice, I would just say to be more patient with yourself and not so hard on yourself. Because in the beginning, I blamed myself a lot for it because doctors would tell me that it was my fault. So why wouldn't I blame myself for it? So that was very hard for me to get over because I would constantly be very hard on myself and kind of just like hate myself in a way because I would say like, man, if I would have took care of myself a little bit better down the like, you know, back then, then maybe I wouldn't be so sick now. And that's another thing I don't think people talk about that, you know, if you don't take care of yourself properly, you know, with type 1 diabetes, whether you're doing it intentionally or not intentionally, you know, you're not going to see the consequences next week or next month. It's like years down the line. You know, I didn't take care of myself properly in high school and I'm dealing with complications now and I'm almost 30. So I don't think people realize. And that's another thing I wish people would tell, you know, newly diagnosed diabetics that the severity of the complications and whether you take care of yourself so good, you could still have complications at the end of the day. But yeah, like I get messages sometimes from moms and asking me, like, how do I prevent my baby from having gastroparesis and it's very hard to answer that question because even if you take care of yourself so well you could still end up with gastroparesis and neuropathy and all the other complications that type 1 diabetes comes with and i think that's something we don't talk about enough eritrea and i were talking about this we in our most recent episode of our podcast where especially with parents and i and i think that question i see both sides of it i think that it's well-intentioned but what we kind of came to in our episode is that diabetes is going to kill us one day, regardless of how good yeah. we take care of ourselves. Like yeah. At the, uh, the doctor's going to sign like, you know, Rob Howe, hopefully age 95, he lived this great life and he, he died of complications from type one diabetes for 70 yeah. years, you know, and like that is just going to be part of that. And we're also all so different where you could have, you could have the best control in high school or throughout your young life. and still get complications like neuropathy and gastroparesis because we're all different and our bodies respond right. differently. And I think, you know, we're, it's easy to say that we're all different and we all, and we all like to say that diabetes is not the same from one person to another, but complications are an uncomfortable part of that too, is that some, for some of us, we're more likely to get complications and there's no reason why, you know, like you said, yeah. it's in high, in high school, you didn't care as much about your diabetes. Who among us is not guilty of that? Uh, and unfortunately yeah. for you, that's, that's resulted in, in, in complications for you in your 30s. And like you said, it's not tomorrow. It's not the next week. It's further down the yeah. line. But when you're 16, you're not thinking about life when you're 32. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking about no. life when you're 50. You know, you're just thinking about that day and, and trying to make it through, you know, your third period English class or, or make it through lunch right. without <laughs> everybody pointing at you. You know, but like, I think. Exactly. And, and so again, like, I just want to affirm to you, like you being vulnerable and talking about the uncomfortable parts of living with complications, especially the questions from other people. 
especially the uncomfortable moments, you know, explaining yeah. to strangers or, or even to people that you love, like in your family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think I actually know some people that I can maybe introduce you to that, that live with diabetes and gastroparesis. And I know it's not the same for everyone, but when you were just saying how lonely you felt, it just reminded me that of, of people that we've talked to from, from the podcast and from the community of who also felt lonely. And then they found people with diabetes and they found people like them. And I, I, I want to see if we can put you into to some people who may be able to may at least make you feel a little bit less lonely sometimes because yeah. <laughs> of all the things that, of all the things that we can't control, one of the things that we can control collectively is being good community members, being good friends and, yeah. and supporting each other, even when it's uncomfortable. And so, yeah, you know, I, I want, I want to thank you for having uncomfortable conversations with us and of course. being that voice to people, because I know that you sharing your story will make a difference for, for someone else. I mean, I am affected dramatically today. I feel like Eritrea is too. And so, dude, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be cheering for you, whatever you want to do. So, you know, thank, again, you. thank you for being an awesome guest and for sharing your life publicly, because otherwise we wouldn't have found you and <laughs> right. we wouldn't, have been, wouldn't have been able to know and like hear your story. So that takes courage. And I just want to, you know, I'm always going to be a, an advocate for people telling their story and opening up because I know the power that that can have in somebody else. Thank you. I, I'm sorry. I'm looking at this out. Are you rapping right now? I'm trying. I want to have another question. <laughs> Ask another question. Are you I, rapping? I, I, I am rapping. <laughs> I've been because I have another. I have another call. But oh, it's uh, okay. No, you're fine. This is important. Don't ask it. Ask away. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to go back for a second when we're talking about the healthcare professionals that sit around and said a bunch of shameful and guiltful stuff. Because can we fight? Like, can we fight in the street for real? Like. I mean, I was ready to fight all the time, but I mean, I didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> I mean, I just, I want to, because you were talking about how important, how isolating it can be, right? So it's like, imagine going to that doctor's office and the professional that you're here to get help from is like, oh, I'll help you, but also this is your fault. So overall, I know healthcare professionals do listen to our podcast and they're not the ones who are perpetuating this kind of verbiage or conversation, but it's really, really, really important for a part of the complications conversation to not be guilt and shame because I think that's what it's even rooted in yeah. with the parents who ask the question it's like yes I don't want my kid to go through the pain but also is there something shameful about my parenting a child with diabetes who later has complications etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. so mm. with guilt and shame and those being so rooted in diabetes community it's just so important for us to eradicate it because it, it has no place here and it's not helpful like yeah it's not getting and I anywhere. get it all the time still like my doctors don't do it to me because I chose my doctors specifically to have a great relationship with them because I see them more than I see my friends. So my doctors don't do that now. But even if I go to the to the hospital, sometimes I get it from doctors there. They're like, I've gotten told like, oh, well, you already have gastroparesis. What more do you want? Like, take care of yourself. Like, so rude to the point where I'm like in tears. <laughs> and like, I don't, those words don't phase me anymore because I'm so used to hearing it. But some some doctors are very, very cruel and I I don't like it because like I I could take it, but what if the next person can't take it? You know, and that's what I think about all the time. Like, I don't know, doctors just need to watch how they, you know, say things and I could take it. I'm strong enough, but I think about people who can't. Like, you know, what if they're like very vulnerable and not in the right headspace and you say that and they blame themselves for reals and you know. That's not healthy mentally at all. 
No, and, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. You know, there's something that I think about all the time is that not every person in a position is a good example of that. Like not every doctor is a good doctor. Not every yeah. business person is a good business person. Just like where people are people and it's on a spectrum. But I'm, I'm glad that there's at least more physicians leading the way on the respect for patients. And there's more papers being written and more studies about better outcomes when you treat patients without the shame, without the stigma. Eritrea works on that in her professional life, like on a huge stigma campaign that just advocates for people because we see how damaging it can be to have that rhetoric. So yeah, we agree. Yeah, there needs Um, to be more changed. Janet, if if people want to follow you, where should we point them? People want to connect with you. I actually only just have Instagram and Twitter. I don't have TikTok or Facebook or anything. I just have Instagram and Twitter. That's it. And it's day underscore Marin with three N's. So you want to do I need to spell it out? <laughs> no, we'll we'll tag you in the show notes and then okay. <laughs> but yeah, definitely give Janet a follow. And again, I just want to thank you for for giving your time for being with us today. And no, I want to thank you guys. You guys are amazing and super understanding when it came to me always canceling. I get so much problems when that happens. Like you guys were amazing. I literally thought you guys were going to be like, never mind. We're just going to never. <laughs> no, we not. We're not like that. We because we know we've been there. <laughs> there there's yeah, some times we're here training. I was like, I ain't got it today, dude. So, That's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you've got you got grace with us always. And I'm so glad we made it happen. And yeah, also, thank you so much. You know, hopefully we'll we'll do an event that you can come to sometime out in Las Vegas. Maybe that'll be coming sometime next year. Spoiler oh, yeah. Away. I, w- I would definitely we'll go. Yeah. Just let me know. And cool. if I'm not in the hospital, I'm there. <laughs> well, and if you are, we're coming to visit you. So that's right. That's, uh, <laughs> Bring the party to my room. <laughs> now we're talking. Right. Okay, Janet. Well, thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you. And I can't, we'll let you know when this episode's going live and so that you can you can check it out but thank you so much and it was so lovely to meet you in person or face to on zoom whatever right we'll meet in person one day (laughs) yes we will yeah thank you so much for having me right bye bye